God has ahead of us and for what it would be like to be a spirit being, the health, the wealth, the beauty, the fine homes, the, the power of transportation and uh, lightning thought and all the various things that it would be like to have as a spirit being. And when you talk to people, when you ask the favor of people, we're all familiar with a certain reaction or a look we get from people. So would you do thus and such for me? And, th- and this look comes across their face. What's in it for me? Whether it be monetarily in business or whether it be emotionally in a family or whatever. Uh, I'll say to my wife and my daughter, would you rub my back or would you rub my feet? And they'll say, what's in it for me? No, actually, they, uh, it's the other way around. I say, what's in it for me? Are you, are you going to rub mine as well when they ask? But we all want our back scratched, don't we? We hate to give without getting something in return. We want to know there's something there for us. Give me all the blessings of the universe. Save my miserable hide, we pray to God. And our prayers become very selfish a lot of times. Because we have extreme localitis. We are the only one, as John said, out there by ourselves a lot of the time. And so instead of focusing on other people's, their needs, corporate needs, we tend to focus on our needs. Why isn't my check big enough? Why don't my kids obey? Why doesn't my wife come to me and say, Honey, I found this great scripture. God's life contains all the above. He had it all. He has it all. All the things we talked about as he sits on his sea of glass with a rainbow over his throne and myriads of angels singing, Hallelujah, holy, 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 adoration, worship. He has everything you could possibly dream of. Does he not? What an incredible life to live. He has a son there with him who never disagrees with him, who's right there, Dad, Whatever you say, I agree with that. They are of one mind. There was a farmer one time that uh, was discussing his spread, the amount of land he had, with another farmer. The one farmer said, you really seem greedy. How much land do you really need? He said, well, not much. Just what joins me. Think about that. Now God has it all. The whole universe. Everything that joins him is his. He created holy angels. Beautiful creatures. By probably the millions, maybe the billions of them. There are billions of stars. All of them have names. And he remembers their names. And I'm so inadequate, I can't remember your names. This morning, I'm not sure I know who I am. What a mind he has. And yet we say, what's in it for me? I want to flip that coin over today. Let's ask another question. What's in it for God? I mean, he has all this. What's in this for him? Let's paint a quick picture on the tapestry of our minds. 
of history, a microcosm of history, if you please, of what has occurred, and let's rehearse this thing as it's unwound. Now, I did a quick study last night, and I came up with a figure of words that are in the Bible. Give or take, there are approximately a million words in the Bible. Now, I didn't count them all. That would have taken some time. But I counted the lines and how many average words there are on a line and multiplied it times the number of pages in my Bible. And give or take some, there's about a million words there. Three-fourths of those words are in the Old Testament. About one-fourth of them, these are rough figures, are in the New Testament. It's an instruction book on how to be, a, how to turn a human being into God. As Mr. Armstrong always said, it's God's instruction book. It's the manual that we go by to become God. And I can't show you a picture up here of all this, so I'm going to have to use a thousand words, more or less, probably more. We're going to summarize this plan for a million words, and we're going to get it down pretty small before we're done. But let's start looking at it. Back from the time that God had created all this, he had the entire universe at his behest, and he had all these angels, and one day, somewhere along the line, the, one of the most beautiful of them all, probably one of the three most beautiful of the angels, named the Light Bringer, he who brings happiness and light and joy to my universe and my world, looked at all this that God had and said, I'm as good as he is. Why aren't I speaking today? Why don't I rule? Well, a third of the angels were already doing what he said. But he got some ego in his way, a little resentment there. He wanted to make some decisions, and war broke out. Such a war as the universe, such an upheaval as has never been known in all of history, where planets, suns, stars being tossed back and forth. We're seeing the detritus of it hitting Jupiter now. Because the world is full, or the universe is full, of the fragments of a mighty war, whereby a third of the angels took on God and his mighty legion. All over a little ego, which became actually a lot of ego. You know, God might have thought, who needs this? My wife told me to keep my hands out of my pockets. I'm too fat, and uh, I keep trying to do that. She said, John gets away with it because he's so skinny and put his hand in his pocket, and when he gets through, his, his coat doesn't ride up there like that. That's not the scripture I wanted her to find. But, but God could have said, who needs that? What's in it for me? And here was this being now who was his arch enemy, fighting him day in and day out. Have you ever had an enemy like that on this earth that you just couldn't get them out of your mind and every time you looked around, there they were, right on top of you, right in your face. What a miserable existence that is sometimes. What did God do? He looked at all that waste that had occurred. And he created all things new. Took all the form and void 
and made a beautiful earth down here, or redid it, and he put man on it, Adam and Eve. Now here's a plan that's going to work. He made them physical this time. In case they sinned, they could be destroyed. You can't destroy Satan. Satan was created, given immortality, or maybe eternal life. He can't die anyway. He wasn't given the gift of eternal life in the mind that we were, are going to receive. But he can't die. Here they had this gorgeous garden. Adam had a specially created woman for old mate. I mean, she was a ten. <laughs> Let's face it. And she had the same thing in Adam. He had to be a ten too. Everything's been downhill since. But they had it all. There are two trees there. One of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came in there and just so quickly it seems. I don't know how long it took, but it was Sabbath. They rested and Sunday morning they had the first gospel singing or what. Or whether this took a while. But it seems like Satan almost at his will just came in there and wham. They turned and took up the tree of knowledge of evil, and boy, did their marriage go downhill. They were suddenly filled with shame, with guilt, with frustration, with insecurity. It was all downhill from there. They had children. They turned out to hate and murder, at least one of them. So he doesn't chronicle the whole thing. He only had room for a million words. But there were a lot of other things that happened, I'm sure. So they, they wound up murdering. You know, God might have thought, who needs this? I had a beautiful universe, and that was what Lucifer did. I recreated a beautiful earth, put a fantastic garden in it. Now look what they've done. Who needs it? What's in it for me? He could have said that very easily. Had he been a mind to. Then it goes on down to Noah. These people lived for 900 years and sinned more and more, and things got so bad that it was... Every thought was evil continually. I don't know whether it's like that today yet or not. Somebody says, well, I think it's a long ways off the coming of Christ because the thoughts are not yet evil continually. Now, what does it take to be evil continually? How many of your thoughts are not evil just on a carnal basis? I don't mean you have to be thinking murder and carrying a gun around for your thoughts to be evil. But isn't lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, isn't that evil? Aren't, isn't selfishness evil? And we're all utterly selfish, selfish apart from God, aren't we? Maybe things are more evil than we realize they are in this world. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at this from God's perspective now. As he looks down at this world. Now, during the flood, it says Christ came down there in Peter and talked or preached to the angels, or preached to the demons. What did he say to them? That I have decided to kill mankind. Now I'm, I'm thinking here, I, I have no idea really what he said, but let's, let's, what would you say? You'd say man has become so evil that it's all at your door. You have caused this. Will you repent? Will you change? Will you remove your influence so that this does not occur and these people don't have to die? You know what the answer was? Let them drown. Kill them. I hate them. 
You've given them opportunities you never gave me. You're unfair. That's what he got back if he preached the sermon to them. It's the only kind of response he could have gotten from Satan. These will die because of you. You know what? God did say, I don't need this. I've had it with these people. I am going to kill them all. And he had every right to do it. But Noah was there. <laughs> one man. Just one man. Out of all those probably millions, maybe billions by then. When you live 900 years, you can have lots of kids. One man down on that entire earth trusted in God. And God saved our miserable hide because of Noah. Then we could go on to Abraham. I'm going to move through this fairly quickly. God looked down at Abraham out of all the evil again that was on the earth. And here was Abraham, a man faithful. He showed deliverance, he showed miracles, he showed hope to Israel once they'd come down from Abraham to, to Moses. Tremendous blessings he had given them. He'd codified a law to govern them, had given them good rulers, Abraham down through Moses. Everything really was looking good for Israel. Boy, but what happened? Just look at the way God wrote the Ten Commandments, for instance. I won't turn back to Exodus 20, but you might be familiar or remember that one statement in there where he says, And showing mercy to thousands of them that keep my commandments. Thousands of them. Now, in some translations that says to the thousands or the thousandth generation, showing mercy to their children, but there aren't a thousand generations. We're only at, even through 7,000 years, we're only up to about 350. So someone, at least in the translation of the King James, felt that there was enough evidence there to translate it to the thousands of them that keep my commandments. There were millions of Israelites. There are billions of people on this earth now and were then, probably. And God said, I'm writing this basically to the thousands of them who will obey me. I think as we go through, we'll see that this is borne out. We won't go through all that Israel went through in their rebellions. That's, that's more Passover, and I don't have time to do it here anyway. But you know the story, the murmuring, the complaining, the griping, the carping. On and on it went. God hates rebellion. It is as witchcraft to him. And witchcraft is as Satan. Satan rebelled against God. Israel rebelled. Everyone rebelled. Adam and Eve rebelled. The whole history of mankind basically is rebellious. See why God hates that? It upsets everything he's trying to do when, when angels and people rebel. They just will not do it. As John was saying the other day, God just can't stand sin. He hates it. It messes everything up. He's kind of like Charlie Brown in the comic strip. I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. 
Look at all the grief and heartache and sorrow God has gone through and is going through with ancient Israel. You know, you, you read about some of the things he said in the statutes and the judgments, like if you have a rebellious son, take him out and stone him. Does that sound like a loving God to you? But look at all that God had been through with these demons. Look at all he had been through with generation after generation of people. And he said, do not tolerate rebellion in your ranks. If you have a kid that is rebellious, take him out and throw rocks at his head until he falls down and dies. Get rebellion out. Is there a clearer message than that? There were times, I, I can look back and think my parents would have been a lot better off had they thrown rocks at my head and seal dealing, dealing with the rocks in my head. You know? It causes problems. Sometimes we allow the children to become our oppressors. I saw a plaque not long ago I was going to get, just as a joke to one of my daughters, It said, if you have problems with your parents, and, they, you know, they just can't see things your way, and they don't have any of the answers, why don't you go out, get yourself a job, and get yourself an apartment, and support yourself while you still have all the answers? <laughs> I thought that was just choice. You know, I think we use the wrong psychology sometimes. God doesn't plead with us much, does he, or beg us to obey him. He gives us opportunity. He gives us promises. He gives us blessings. And he says, obey me and I will bless you. But if you don't obey me, I will curse you. You know, I see teenagers all over the place who are just saying, boy, wait till I'm 18. I'm out of here. I'm gone. No more church. No more you. Nothing. I'm out of here. And the parents plead with them and beg, oh, stay. Say, in what we've been telling ours, when you turn 18, we're going to break your plate and drop kick you off the front porch. <laughs> you know what our reaction is? We're going to stay just as long as we want to. <laughs> well, maybe that's a little harsh, and I, I say it partially in jesting, but on the other hand, when the inmates run the asylum, you've got problems. Some of those things need to be dealt with. God was pretty strong here in some cases. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, he looked around and said, All right, if you can find even five, I'll save the city. Word there. Lot, you just get out. <laughs> he couldn't stand any more of that. It had gotten so bad, he just in his righteousness could not handle it anymore. What did God finally tell Israel? What did he tell Moses, I mean? I can't handle this anymore. Moses, I am going to blot them out. I am going to kill this whole nation. Who needs this? What's in this for me? I don't think God said that, but he could have. At any point, he could have righteously said, what's in this for me? Blot them out. And he was going to. And again, Moses saved uh, another man. One man saved our scruffy hides, didn't he? He said, God, kill me. Don't kill them. Kill me. He said, I can't do that, Moses. You're the only bright spot I see down there. Essentially. So he didn't. He relented. 
I don't really have time to spend a lot of time in it, but I want to turn back to Ezekiel 16, where God addresses the nation of Israel, and he says, you weren't important. You came from not-so-famous people, Amorites and Hittites, in the land of Canaan. You're born and your nativity was there. You weren't great, but I brought you out and I nurtured you and I taught you and you were sinful. I passed by you, verse 6, and saw you polluted in your own blood. It was a time of love and you were naked and I picked you up and I made a nation out of you and I was proud of you and I dressed you in fine clothes and put golden jewelry on you and badger skins and fine furs and I just made you a beautiful nation before me. And what did you do? You trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot. And he goes on down through it and talks about all their abominations and how she would sleep with just anybody. We made a covenant with God that he would be our ruler, he would supply our needs, he would take care of us, and immediately we start making alliances with the Amorites and Hittites and Philistines and anybody around that was there that would have anything to do with Israel. And as individuals, Now, when God brought this bride out, brought her out of sin, cleaned her all up, made a covenant with, think about your marriage here. He says, you were so bad that it belonged to anybody. You would lay down for anybody, he says. Everyone that passed by, his it was. Is this whoredom a small matter? What if your husband or wife, who is so precious in your eyes, came to the point that anybody, anytime, anywhere, he says, it got so bad, you're worse than a whore. You paid them. Normally people give gifts to the harlot, but you give gifts to your lovers to get more and more, and come on. What would this do to your marriage? I think you'd about be over right now, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you say, what's in this for me? I've had it. Who needs this? And you'd split if it got this bad. I will judge you, verse 38, as women that break wedlock and that shed blood are judged. And I will give you blood in fury and jealousy. Verse 49, Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. That's pretty much America today. Full of pride and ego and vanity. Plenty of time to do nothing, for the most part, and plenty, fullness of bread. And we go a-whoring after anything except God. Any kind of pleasure, any kind of while away my time, rather than truly seeking God and being in submission to Him and really wanting to please God in every way that we possibly can. We just sort of do our own thing. Is this getting depressing? None is righteous. No, not one. All your righteousnesses are as menstruous flaws. That's not very righteous.
Oh, uh, some American politicians went over to deepest Africa, and they were wanting to spread democracy to that particular section. It was pretty, pretty way out in the back, in the bush. And uh, they went to this chief, this village, thatched huts, cows running all over the place, animals wandering in and out. They're going to sit down and talk with this chief because they wanted to bring democracy there. And they didn't figure the chief really spoke any English, so they were going to go through this interpreter. So they told them, Chief, if you will just accept democracy here, give up being chief, we will give you pork barrels by the shipload. We'll send you aid. The chief said, Umbala. And then they went on. All the promises the American government would bring to these people, Umbala. The politicians just patted themselves on the back and thought, my, this chief is going to be a democratic government soon. And as they were leaving the hut and going on to get on their plane and go back and report this to Congress, the chief said, no step in Umbala. <laughs> well, that's old enough that you haven't heard it or not. It's pretty old. So John was talking about that a little bit the other day in Deuteronomy. And when God looks down at this earth, we have sure sunk up the joint, haven't we? Look back through history. And what he has been seeing. Now we can go to Hebrews 11 and we can see some notable exceptions to this. But as a whole, apart from a few thousands, we see billions of people who are just fouling up everything. Look at what's left on this earth after 6,000 years. And then God leaves us in the Old Testament with some pretty, pretty dire prophecies about how he's going to just simply decimate this country, this world, down to the place that there's hardly a tenth left, and maybe less than that. Just, you know, he keeps pulling hairs out of his pocket. Throw these in the fire. Throw these in the fire. God finally said at the end of the New Testament, who needs this? I am going to punish these people so deeply, so desperately. Oh, there's that clock. I've been hearing about that. I never pay attention. I got one in here. It, it just it just shuts off, and I can't say anymore. I have to quit. John's that way, too. You know, you, you speak so long, you're, you have an inner clock that knows how long an hour is. I, uh, I'm trying to switch it off here. But so closes the Old Testament with some pretty dire prophecies. So let's leave Israel in the boneyard. We'll let John handle that this afternoon. That's a different area. But it's pretty bleak. Nothing but ugliness, nothing but rebellion, basically, with a few notable exceptions. Now what? So far... Satan has rejected God. Adam and Eve have. All the people have. Israel has. They've all gone their own way. They all sang a song that said, I did it my way. And when somebody comes up and makes a song like that, it sells millions, doesn't it? Through it all, I did it my way. Now we can see what my way is. All those blessings and promises God made thrown away. All right, let's go on to the New Deal. God ups the ante. 
He says, this has not been working. Nothing wrong with my laws, nothing wrong with the promises I gave them, but they just wouldn't live up to it. They rebelled against everything they said they would do. I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to give them some bigger promises. Read it in Hebrews. A covenant based on better promises. He was going to offer life eternal and all those things we talked about on the first day. He upped the ante, and he also upped the cost. And he said, son, let's pack an ass and gather some firewood and go to Mount Moriah. You get my drift. We're upping the ante here, but someone's got to die for this. Now you think about this. Here's God, only two God beings in the universe, so far as we know. And God, let's understand the stakes, is saying, you're going down, and you are going to show these yahoos how to live, and then you are going to die. And he said, yes, Father, that's the way I see it. But what I am risking by sending you down there and you agreeing to go is that if you sin, there will be no one else to die for sin, and you will die, and I will not resurrect you, and I will have to live alone with none of my kind throughout all eternity. Because you can't create God like you can angels. God was risking living alone. Don't let anyone tell you that say that God that Christ couldn't have sinned. He had to have been able to sin. If there was no jeopardy there, we don't have a savior. If there was no jeopardy there, there's no plan that can work. He was tempted in all points like we are. Every way. Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, every temptation that you have ever felt. Jesus Christ felt in his mind and body. Every one of them, brethren, even those dark ones way back here. He had every one of them you had. All points. None left out. The risk had to be there. If we can fail, he had to be susceptible to failure as well. Doesn't that, isn't that logical? Otherwise, the situation is simply not valid. You know, we might risk our life, Paul said, for really a righteous person. And if a child is drowning in a pool or about to be run over by a car, we might even unthinkingly, dash out or dive in off of a hundred-foot cliff and try to save that drowning child. I read a horrible story not long ago where a woman down on the beach, below the boardwalk, whatever the situation was, her child fell into a tide pool and the surf was coming in. She dived in unheedingly trying to save her child, and all these people up on the boardwalk just watched to see if she'd make it. And mother and child both drowned. Is every thought evil continually? It was just a spectacle, like on TV. Hmm, wonder if she's going to make it. How sick can you get? 
We might die quickly and unwittingly trying to save someone else. God the Father and Jesus Christ planned this. He planned to come down here. After all of the hatred and the animosity and the frustration rebellion we've already talked about, what an incredible thing. Another thing we had to have in this new deal is we had to have access to the same tools that Christ had access to. We had to have the Spirit of God without measure. As much as we want to or desire to or have the ability to call on, God will give His Spirit without measure. Jesus Christ had God's focal attention, you better believe it, and He was so willing to help in this project. He couldn't sin once not even once it was so despicable to God, and lived. And he understood the stakes very well. And he prayed till he sweat blood. He really put the effort into it. Because he knew the stakes. And he had been there, and he knew how good it was to be God. He had a vision clearer and brighter and bigger and better than ours tends to be. And he really worked at it. And then it occurred and would occur a non-sinner who never stepped in Umbala had to die. Never put his foot in it, brethren. What a, a tremendous, it's just unbelievable. Probably the most heart-rending and sad scripture in the whole Bible. It's when he had lived 33 and a half years of absolutely perfect life, gone through every temptation we have and never wavered. He hung on that tree, and he was all alone with our sins. And he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How alone, having been beaten worse than any human being had ever been beaten so that you could look down and see every bone, that much flesh was flayed off. And he was all alone, because indeed God had forsaken him. He was utterly rejected of men and utterly rejected of God at that point. And he died alone. There are 250,000 words in the New Testament basically to explain the ramifications of the contract and the consequences for failure to live up to that contract once we take it. Once you are baptized, once you have repented, once you receive God's Holy Spirit, once you put your hand to the plow, you can't turn back. You can't afford rebellion. You can't afford resentment. You can't afford ego and vanity. There's no place for it anymore. Once you have been begotten of God, you have to be dealt with. There are a lot of babies who are not wanted, who have been in the wombs of their mothers. It has to be dealt with. You can't come home and say, well, hmm, no, you're not sort of pregnant. You're not almost pregnant. It's there. 
And for us, judgment is now. It's there. We are in the same position in one sense that Israel was back there. They were having their chance at a promised land with limited promises at that time. And they blew it. And that was written for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. As examples, read 1 Corinthians 10 and other places. Now, considering this backdrop of the new covenant, the new deal, the new promises, the new tools, the example of one who went before, what do we start out with here? Twelve disciples who would rather go fishing or go bury somebody. Twelve disciples who couldn't stay up and pray with him the night before he died. Twelve disciples who turned and ran when his name was mentioned the next day or even that same night. Who needs it? What's in it for God? Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came. Things began to change here. The tool came. The comforter came. The power, the faith came. And people who had been running, people who had been denying, like Peter, stood up and preached a sermon so powerful, 3,000 people were converted one day. What a tremendous power that must have been. I, even God, I could think, could hardly believe it. After all the litany of past problems, the 3,000 people could say, I accept, I believe, this is right. Baptize me. Wow. 3,000 at once. See what the Holy Spirit of God can do? Isn't it incredible, the tool that God has given us? Now, right there, you saw very magnified powers being given. Peter's shadow even passing over people would heal them. Dead raised. All kinds of things occurred. Now, that's great. With all that power also came immediate and greater condemnation and judgment. I refer you to Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They lied and they died. You've lied and you still live. But they were new converts and they thought, hmm, what's in it for me? <laughs> they're, they're telling us all to give everything we have and have all things in common. Not just to take somebody to lunch on second tithe, but toss it all in the pot. We have not been requested to do that yet. Are we ready? Maybe we won't be. Maybe emotionally, spiritually, we've been requested to throw it all in the pot. Are we lying? Are we holding some back? Are we still being selfish? Are we willing to come to God's feast and give everything we have of ourselves to everyone here? Are we willing to put aside our resentment and say, well, why didn't I get a sermonette or lead songs, or why couldn't I sing in the choir or give special music? Why did he get to, or why did she get to? Are we willing to give ourselves a little resentment there to enjoy, to play with? Are we willing to throw it all in, or are we lying and holding back? God may give us, maybe he won't, maybe he will, 
give us some of the gifts he gave Peter and James and John at the beginning of the New Testament. But I'll bet with it he'll give us greater accountability if he does. As it is now, we're not getting that kind of answers for the most part, and God is being merciful and kind and letting us wallow along, isn't he? But you know, the God we've been talking about finally at one point says, I'm going to kill him! He's not giving up on you. He's going to throw you in the tribulation if you keep holding back. If you don't give it all, you're going in the tribulation. <laughs> he will never leave you nor forsake you. <laughs> if going into the tribulation feels like never being left nor forsaken. But if you find yourself there, you have not been left or forsaken. You've just been turned over to the devil. But you might repent and that you might become on fire for God. On this line, let's go to Second Timothy for a moment. There's a, a very loud scripture back here. Second Timothy 2. And let's pick it up. <coughs> He's talking to Timothy here, giving him instruction as a minister. Let's pick it up in about uh, verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach patience in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. How do you oppose yourself? How are you in opposition to yourself? Well, you have a goal. You are striving to be righteous, to be holy, to be like Jesus Christ. And when you allow rebellion or bitterness or resentment or ego to filter in, you are opposing your goal. You're getting in your own way. And some do not come back, I dare say. And I hate to even bring this up. I dare say there are those sitting in this congregation today who will not be back next year. I base that on past history. I base that on this whole history we've been talking about. I don't think God is done with someone who does not want to be part of this organization or wants to go somewhere else or try another pair of shoes or whatever they got in mind. But because of some little attitude toward John or uh, to me especially or whoever or somebody that's a deacon and they ain't, you know, there are so many things we can get torqued off about. They let a little root of bitterness come in and then they are gone. What a pity. I feel with all my heart I get the best teaching that is available on this earth right here. I really do. I thought John gave probably the best sermon I'd ever heard him give just the other day, the last one. And he's given a lot of fine ones. But that was just special, the things he said. Probably won't be able to do as good this afternoon. I'm sorry, I shouldn't put pressure like that. I'm sure he will, because God is on his throne. And God is the one who inspires it. And it isn't John Reitenbaugh, and it isn't John Reed, or it isn't John 3, 4, 5, or 6, or how many we have around here. It's God. But let's finish this right here. 
those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, instruct them in meekness, hoping that they will quit opposing themselves and be humble and meek. But notice verse 26, and this is in, oh my, and, they, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Remember those third of the angels back there? He had a problem. They all followed him. They didn't follow God, they followed Lucifer, and they all fell as a star falling from heaven. And we have all had to cross that bridge, haven't we? We wouldn't be here today. We had to face that government issue. And we had to follow God and the truth. But if you put yourself in a resentful mood or any of these other things we've talked about, you are setting yourself up so that Satan can just snap you up. Have you ever been blindsided by Satan? Somebody told me they had been recently, just here at the feast. I think we all have that feeling. You, you, you work, you work, you work, and you think, boy, I've got things under control here now. And all of a sudden, something you thought you'd overcome, something that wasn't a problem anymore, and you were going on to bigger and better things you were working on, and all of a sudden, from the back, whap! And something you had been a week in, and all of a sudden, there you are, in the umbala again. I told that story so I'd have a nice word I could use, see? But there you are. And it just seems like at his will, Satan can just wham, he's got you. See how important it is to guard the doors of your mind, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ so that he just doesn't have a chance. But when you are in a position of opposition, it just makes it so he can just sort of take you at his will. And hopefully you wake up and realize what's happening to you before it's too late. And you just go completely down and blaspheme God and say, I don't want any more of this. There is that danger. Understand, brethren, as John said the other day, we are hand-picked. In fact, he said it this morning again. So I'll say it again three times. Sometimes God repeats things three times. For emphasis, we are hand-picked. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. You just can't do it. None of those people who are making all that noise over here Sunday can come to God unless he draws them out of that. They just can't do it. You know, when God looks down and begins calling, he and the son look down and say, do you think that one can make it? I don't know. Pretty weak in base. But, you know, I think there's something there we can work with. I think if we really work that one over, <laughs> we can get him to repent. I think if we really keep putting the heat on, he'll repent. Oh, there he goes again. Lay some on him. <laughs> and he finally decides, yes, let's call that one. Because it is a specific calling. You can't deny it at this point. You can't get out of it. You can't 
tickledy-ziggledy off of it, you have been called. And I would say at this point, you're mighty close to have been chosen as well. If you don't blow it. He has to draw him to us. But boy, what glory when the course is finished. We can't do it on our own. Now, we've talked about a lot of blood and guts and gore. We talk about a lot of the anger of God and how he has reacted to sin throughout known history. And it could be depressing. And I, I last night I was all inspired. I was finishing this sermon up. And I looked at it this morning. I thought, man, that's depressing. And I didn't want to give it. I thought, well, why don't we just keep singing songs? That's a beautiful sound. We could, I could, maybe I could have led songs for an hour out of the hymn. We could have sung the whole hymn book and we'd all gone out of here inspired. And I was really feeling low. But now we're getting down to a point here where I think we can start to turn this around a little bit. I think we had to look at it. But an announcement was made yesterday. Jennifer has been baptized. Now, how did that make you feel? To me, I felt kind of warm and cozy and glowing inside. I thought, that's good. I'll make a point to give Jennifer a hug. And I kind of snuck up on her and did. I had a, a warm glow and a good feeling about that. I'm sure you all did too. What was the reaction in heaven as opposed to yours? The angels in heaven leaped for joy over one sinner brought to repentance. I didn't stand up in my chair and leap up in the air and sing, Hallelujah, praise God's name. I didn't do it. Maybe I should have. Maybe we all should have. So what with decorum? <laughs> well, maybe we shouldn't. We're in a more formal situation here, and it might be taken as holy roller or something. I don't know. But the angels are uninhibited, and God just, after all of this rebellion and sin and frustration, how incredible they must feel when one says, Yes, Father, I accept. I'm dirty, I'm rotten, I'm filthy. I want to be clean. I'll do anything I can to be clean. Wash me with this, purge me. Make me clean and white before your throne. And the angels just can't stand it at that point. Whoa! You bet, after all they've seen... They already talked about Ananias and Sapphira. We'll go on past that, but I want to leap ahead of that anyway. That was getting to be an old saw. Acts 6, 7, and 8. Now, this has been referred to a little bit because this is a new church now, and I don't have time to go back and read all this. I'm going to run out here in a little bit. But I'll, I'll just talk to you about it. You don't have to take notes today anyway. Uh, I, I'm covering a million words, and you can't write that fast. I tell you that now. Thanks a lot. There's a tape, maybe, if anybody lets it out. But here was Stephen, a new convert, basically. Maybe he had been around a while and been a part uh, of the 120, but basically pretty new in Acts 6. And Stephen was a deacon had been newly ordained in the first batch of deacons ever given armbands. 
Some of you remember those. But Stephen was doing something special. He was filled with faith in the power of God, in the in newly found power of the Holy Spirit of God. You know how it is sometimes after you're first baptized? You just seem to have a desire and more power to overcome a lot of your problems than you do later on in your spiritual growth. God seems to just answer your prayers better. And he gave you tremendous things such as a better job or such as uh, who knows what. We've all had experiences where it just seemed like right at first we would give a, have a prayer and it'd be answered. And healings would come and all kinds of good things would happen soon after we were baptized. And then a little later, it kind of tailed off like it did here in the Ephesus era. But Stephen gave a powerful sermon, one of the few sermons recorded in the Bible. Before people who hated him, who wanted to see him persecuted, who wanted to see him martyred, and he stood right in the teeth of the storm. And he preached all through the Old Testament and showed what God had done and how God had delivered him talked about, I think, Moses and Abraham, I don't remember everyone he mentioned, but a tremendous, powerful sermon. And they hated it and gnashed their teeth against him. There is a time not to go hide from persecution. There is a time, as Jesus Christ did, to slip away in the crowd. There is a time to avoid confrontation. We may have to go through all the cities of Israel hiding, but there is a time to stand in the faith and the power and the strength of Almighty God, and not back off. And he did not back off one whit. And the thing was brought up. Why was Christ standing beside his Father on the throne? He couldn't help it! He was riveted down there. After all of Satan had done, and Adam and Eve, and all the people at Noah's time, and all we've gone through, people rebelling and turning from God, here was the first piece of ripe fruit about to be picked. Here was the first one really tested after having received the Holy Spirit of God other than Ananias and Sapphira who didn't make it. And maybe he stood on the throne there as, as Ananias and Sapphira were questioned to see if they would stay under the influence of Satan and fall over backward or whether they would fall on their knees and say, I repent before God, we did hold back, please forgive us. But they held it back and died. And Christ probably just slumped back on the throne. Oh, failure of man again. So when Stephen gave this sermon and spit in their face, with the words he said, to the point they could not stand it. Jesus Christ had every nerve in his body tingling. He stood up. He gave a standing ovation. He gave, oh, the, the hosannas, the singing, the praise to God for his great plan when Stephen said, leave this not to their charge and got a rock in the face and fell down and died. What a difference between Jesus Christ dying where he had been forsaken and was all alone in this situation where God was there in the cheering session along with all of the angels of heaven and the 24 elders and the four beasts and everyone in the host of heaven with their attention riveted right there on Stephen. How could he help but have stood 
in anticipation, in hope. This one's going to make it. Hang in there, Stephen. Don't back off. Let him have it. And when he stood, heaven just came unglued, I'm sure, because it was the first one, as far as I know, and he made it. It came through. The new plan was working. Here we go. The Holy Spirit groans for us, it says. Just groans and aches. That's the way Christ felt in God the Father when Stephen was there. Oh, I hope they make it. It takes faith. It takes courage. It takes striving unto blood to resist the devil. Fear not him who can destroy the body, but him who can fear body and soul, or who can destroy body and soul. Fear not, little flock. It is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants this so bad. We're getting down to the answer of the question I posed. What's in it for God? He had everything. But his family wasn't big enough. He wanted more kids. It made him so proud when Stephen made it that he just was about to bust his buttons. My first, well, there, there are others who had qualified, David, Moses, and Abraham, but I mean of the new covenant, and, and as it went through, this was the first martyr as far as we know. And God just had to be in right, godly pride, just like when we have a child, our firstborn son. Oh, a father beams. We don't like cigars, but boy, are we proud. And that's just the smartest, best-looking thing. Everybody else says, what an ugly baby. <laughs> Wrinkles, red. It shapes funny, but to you, it's just gorgeous. Mother laying there thinking, will I ever get rid of this thing? And then when she sees it, she just dissolves into tears and smiles of happiness that a child is born. For unto us a son is given. What a wonderful feeling the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time that happens. That's the way God feels about it. You see, he can't help himself. He is gives. There was no other reason for him to create human beings except that he wanted to share what he had. After all the failure of man, the prayers of the saints are like incense going up. The songs we sing are beautiful music to his ears out of all the cacophony and din of all that's going on down here on this earth. And all the excrement, and I'll use that word now, that mankind has spread across this world. He looks down, and that incense and those songs we sing are so important. Richard hit it right on the head. What a beautiful sound to God that someone would lift their songs in praise of the eternal. We're boiling a million words down here now, and we're getting pretty close, and some of you have about guessed where I'm headed. Let's go back to 1 John 3. And verse 1. Behold, 
what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. Didn't recognize him and won't recognize us. But what love that he would let us be called the sons of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Satan, Lucifer, never had that opportunity, and he got jealous. Never got to give a sermonette, I guess, or whatever it is that bobs your cork, whatever it is that you could get resentful over. By now you've guessed the subject, I guess. This is a sermon on love. It was defined for us very well the other day in a sermon on love. But that's what I'm talking about. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. That is the embodiment of God. That's all He is. That's what He is. That's everything He is. He couldn't help it. <coughs> he never said, finally, it ain't worth it. What's in it for me? He just can't say that because he is love. And he's willing to put some terrible things on us to show his love. Tough love. Tender, kind love. Some jerk out of the fire. Some bring with compassion. He does it both ways. He does it any way he has to. It is so important to him. We've boiled one million words down to one, haven't we? God is love. Now, it takes a million words to explain that and all the ramifications of it. A million very carefully chosen words. God breathed words for us to get the picture. And I haven't done it justice. I know that. I've skipped over an awful lot of things, and I kept thinking of things I needed to say, and I knew I'd run out of time. But when you boil it down, that's it. The caring, the sharing, the giving, after all the he has seen happen down here. He is so happy to see submissive, kind, gentle, loving people willing to do his work. Filled with the Spirit of God and the gifts of his Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the meekness, the long-suffering, the kindness and gentleness that we can show to each other. That just thrills the cockles of his heart to look down and see you and me being willing to bow our knees and bow our heads and submit to the eternal God of heaven and earth. So long, brethren, as we draw breath, we still have the opportunity to get rid of the foul and the perverse and to become holy. I don't know how long you will draw breath. I don't know how long I will. I could be dead by the time I walk off this stage. I could stumble right there and fall, hit my head, and be gone. But so long as you draw breath, you have the opportunity to change what needs to be changed. Don't draw back. Don't shrink back. Come boldly before the throne of Almighty God and receive the power and the help and the strength you need. Don't neglect so great a salvation as God has laid before us in this feast. No matter what trial, tribulation, tribulation or whatever you might face, even martyrdom, you are the eternals in sickness and health. 
you belong to him. He purchased you. He paid for you. And you said, I will be a good servant. Now we have to live up to that. The plan is working. There's not a problem there. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he's boiled it down. When he said, thousands of them that obey me and keep my commandments, I will show mercy on, it's leading up to the book of Revelation, where it says he will come with ten thousands of his saints. Not hundreds of millions of his saints, but with tens of thousands of his saints. He doesn't lose his numbers. He knows how many are coming to Armageddon. He talks about 200 million there. But he says, I will return with tens of thousands of my saints. 144,000 plus an innumerable multitude, but we're still talking in tens of thousands, not millions. Not billions. Not all these people that have lived and died. Those that he has carefully handpicked, selected, called, ultimately chosen, and made immortal, he's going to return with. His plan is not anywhere near not working. You might have gotten the feeling that Daryl was up there talking about all these things of God's failure. No, I wasn't, brethren. Not at all. He didn't relegate those people to death just because he blotted them out. I won't get into that subject because that's John's this afternoon. And I don't try not to get in his way. I may have already a little bit and overlap. No, as a P.S., he didn't fail and leave them in the boneyard. That will be covered. God's plan is going to work, even all those people. How appreciative, brethren, we should be. How worshipful. How thankful. For what we owe God. We should just be aching to pray to God instead of fighting it with our carnality. We should just be aching to give thanks to God, to sing songs to God, to sing at the top of our voice songs to God. We've done a good job here. But it, we should just be so filled understanding what God has done for us. We owe Him so much in gratitude and faithfulness and loyalty. Remember the bucket, bumper sticker? We owe, we owe, so off to work we go. I'm giving you something to do here now. We are going to be going home. We are going to be essentially alone in a lot of slight ways. But let's capture the vision of what really has been done and what the history is of what people haven't done. And let's go to work. For to him that overcomes, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out, and I will write a new name upon him, the name of my God, and the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. What an incredible thing that God himself will come down and give you a name like that. It's worth the work. And you know what's going to happen? Now, I'm just picturing this, and I can't draw the picture the way it really is, and I'm just sort of trying to paint this for us. God is going to sigh and say, 
it was tough. But those are my sons in whom I am well pleased. As an addendum to the other one where he said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we will answer with every fiber of our powerful beings, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and has come, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things for your pleasure. They are and were created because he's a father and he can't help himself. He wanted to share it so much and have lots and lots of kids. And he's willing to go through all the child-rearing pain and agony and frustration that eventually he might have a finished product. You bet he stood up and cheered. And all the angels leaped for joy when you were baptized. And you bet he stood up there in tremendous anticipation when Stephen was winding up his sermon and he knew what was going to happen. He knew Stephen was going to die right there. And he did not intervene. But don't ever think that he forsook Stephen because he didn't and Stephen is safe and awaiting a resurrection. And don't ever think he will forsake you for he has said, I will never forsake you.